Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches but there's only one mccrispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. You were doing satire up against an authoritarian government and then risking everything by turning it into a TV show. And it wasn't just any TV show. There's 80 million people in Egypt and 30 million people are watching your TV show. And you left being a heart surgeon at age 37 to do that. Yes. First question I have is, when you stopped being a doctor to do YouTube videos, was your wife upset? Well, I didn't happen this way. I didn't just like switch from medicine into YouTube videos. What happened was that during the revolution, I was a regular doctor who went down to the streets to treat the people who were wounded and injured in the clashes against the pro-government forces. I didn't have entertainment in my mind. I didn't have YouTube in my mind. Uh, but every day that I would go back home, I would see the state-run media and see how they skewed the truth, how they spread fake news and lies and rumors and brainwashed the masses, and I was upset. You had the most popular show out there. What was it, do you think, that kind of made you stand apart from the other shows? The way that they were running the media was very stupid. And what happened was I made fun of this, and I think people needed this. I think people needed someone to speak about this. Because it's so tense. Yes. And you're almost providing permission to relieve the tension. Exactly. And the videos caught fire. 
I thought maybe 10,000 people would watch and then there were millions watching. So I am so excited to have Bassem Youssef. There's so many things about your background. I almost don't even know where to start the intro, but you're the ideal example of someone who's completely recreated your life and career several times and made enormous successes out of it each time. But that's only the beginning. So time, sorry for the long intro. <laughs> Time made you uh, one of the 100 most influential people in the world in 2013. Um, that's just a start, but essentially you were a heart surgeon, then you became in, in Egypt, then around the time of the Arab Spring so-called revolution, you started doing YouTube videos about it. They got millions and millions of views. You switched careers to comedy. You got a TV show that got tens of millions of viewers a week. Then eventually, I mean, you were considered the John Stewart of Egypt. Then eventually, due to problems with the government in Egypt, you moved here to America, and now you're recreating yourself again. Um, you have a podcast uh, uh, that you just started remade in America. Is that? Re and uh, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, I feel like the, the intro doesn't do it justice because yeah. like, here, someone could say, oh, you made some YouTube videos, then you got a TV show. And it kind of is just like this nice little thing, like, oh, I did some sketches and now it's a TV show. But you were like go doing satire up against uh, an authoritarian uh, government and kind of on the run and, and then risking everything by turning it into a TV show. And it wasn't just any TV show. There's, there's 80 million people in Egypt and 30 million people were watching your TV show. And now you're here. Yeah. And and you left being a heart surgeon at age 37 to do that. Yes. First question I have is when you left, when you stopped being a doctor to do YouTube videos, was your wife upset? Well, I didn't happen this way. I didn't just like switch from medicine into YouTube videos. What happened was that during the revolution, I was a regular doctor who went down to the streets and to to fix people's wounds to treat the people who were wounded and injured in the clashes uh, with uh, against the pro-government uh, forces. I didn't have entertainment in my mind. I didn't have YouTube in my mind. Uh, but every day that I would go back home, uh, I would see the state-run media and see how they uh, skewed the truth, how they uh, spread fake lies, uh, and fake news and lies and, and rumors and brainwashed the masses, and I was upset. And, and you know, I, I want to mention, because um, I forgot to mention this in the intro, but, you, but you're sort of touching on it. A lot of this you describe in your excellent book, which I encourage everyone to read, Revolution for Dummies, uh, yes. how you uh, were going into Tahrir Square, where a lot of the revolution, where a lot of the protests were happening, and you wanted to help people. You were bringing food. You, of course, were bringing your medical services, and the the army or the thugs or the you know who are the pro government forces were stopping you. But then you took a risk, like you had to you had to get there somehow, and people were getting hurt there. Yes. Like, how did you get to the center of things so you could help people? And were you afraid of? There, there, there was a safe passage for doctors to go in and try to help the people. So we kind of that was secured by the revolutionaries, 
And I, I did that almost every day, uh, bring in medical supplies and try to fix the wounds and try to heal the people. What wounds were there? Like what was happening? Uh, there was like all kinds of look, uh, cut wounds, broken wounds. Uh, there were like, uh, there's a lot of eye doctors that were on site because they, a lot of people were hurt having shots in their eyes. And uh, it, it was a, a very, very brutal. It was like a war zone. As a heart doctor though, does that give you enough, I mean, this is how naive I am about medicine, but as a heart doctor, does that give you enough general skills to help kind of the, the wounds that could, the, the many various wounds that could occur well, in a basically, battle situation? We were doing that kind of like a first aid thing, you know, and anything that was specialized would triage you to go to the nearest hospital. But we, I didn't go there to perform heart surgery, just like simple stitches and, and, and to stitch wounds and, to have uh, to heal their cuts, uh, that kind of. Uh, what was the worst you had to heal? Uh, oh, the war is like a very, um, very bad uh, deep wound in the neck. Uh, thank God it did not get any hit any deep uh, arteries or veins. But that was like a very long kind of like I think it took like kind of thirty two stitches or something. So later on, I'm going to ask you about kind of um, the political context of revolution versus pro-government, not only in Egypt, but zooming out globally and, and your view on that. But I want to also, I want to start first with kind of the, the career stuff. So you're doing this, um, you have some friends that want you to, and you're noticing kind of the, the fake news slant that the, that's happening in the government controlled media. Um, you have some friends who are encouraging you to do a YouTube video. What, what sort of happened next? So I did the YouTube videos while I was waiting actually for my papers to arrive from Cleveland because I was accepted to start a, a pediatric heart surgery fellowship in Cleveland. Cleveland Heart Clinic? No, in the Rainbow Hospital for Children because Cleveland, at that time, Cleveland Clinic didn't have pediatric heart surgery. Mm -hmm. So I was accepted in that hospital, the other hospital, and I was just waiting for the H1 visa to arrive. And then the revolution happened and then... Uh, after we got rid of the 30 years old, the 30 years, the, the, the dictator that was there for 30 years, Mubarak, I started to do the videos. And I, I didn't really think anything about the videos. I didn't leave medicine. I was just like, I'm just killing time until my papers arrive. And the videos caught fire. I thought maybe 10,000 people would watch and then there were millions watching. How, how, did, how did they, so, so A, Describe like that very first video and B, what's your theory on, you know, obviously many people create great YouTube videos, some catch fire, most don't. What's your theory on why yours caught fire? But, for, but first, describe that very first video. The video is basically satirizing how the state-run media were very creative uh, in telling people how, uh, no, don't, do, don't go down to the streets. They were like using all kinds of lies. They were like... Uh, uh, there are mujahideen, there are terrorists, there are people having sex, all kind of like stupid lies. So you didn't obviously just say these are lies. Like, how did you use no you, of satire? You, you, you would get it's kind of like I, I was very um, uh, influenced by the Daily Show style. So it was like video coming back to comment on it, creating a narrative over the shoulder uh, uh, pictures. It was that kind of of, of style. Like it's it's it's. Uh, a very knocked off version of the Daily Show, and and, and you know, this is satire is almost hand given to you here, as opposed to let's say in America where it's I I feel like it's I don't want to say it's hard to do satire, but you were kind of you have these uh, uh, 
almost fundamentalists or, or serious fundamentalists who are on the pro-government side saying, um, oh, there's sex happening at the protests. That's but these funny. Were, but, these were, but these were not even Islamists. They were like, you know, the, because the government was not Islamist. When you say fundamentalists, basically the pro-regime, the radical pro-regime nationalistic uh, people. And the, the way that they want to uh, alienate people out of their sex, there are boys and girls dancing. There are people having go, sexual relationships. Like that's an amazing marketing for the Tahrir Square. Yeah, that's yeah. why more I, people will go. I, I feel like that's a slam dunk for satire. Like they kind of they yeah. kind of pitched you an easy pitch in yes. uh, baseball terms. Exactly. Oh yeah, because it it was a very the way that they were running the media was very stupid. And uh, what happened was, I. Uh, I made fun of this and, and, and I think people needed this. I think the reason, it was not just like the video was good or bad. I think people needed someone to speak about this. Because it's so tense yes. and you're almost providing a way, you're almost providing permission to relieve the tension. Exactly. Like, so people could share the video to their cousin and say, look, it's okay to, this, is, this, is, this guy's explaining how ridiculous it is and it's kind of funny. Yes, exactly. And, and so, so what, what, what do you think happened? Was there kind of a big, a big personality that started retweeting or or sharing? No, your video it was or? the most organic, democratic sh- spread of an idea. People, were, there was no person, big personality doing it. They were like just like regular people, as, as if there was a feeling that like we own this now, we can actually uh, push what we want as content, not waiting for the government to tell us what to push or not. So people were just watching this video and spreading it to their spreading friends. Spreading it, and then in a couple of weeks, I've, there's millions, and then five million. I, I from ten thousand to five million. At what point, literally, at what number did you realize, huh, my my life might have just changed? No, I didn't really think about that. There was not like a really a point where I thought uh, my life has changed. But what the 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 trigger was when networks started calling. Saying would and it was you, pretty quick that they were calling. That by by the second week, by the second week they is were. Is that calling. because nobody had made a video in Egypt that got like five million views before? No, 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 no. It was not about the numbers. It was about uh, for the first time people uh, saw someone uh, speaking truth to power. But you, okay, that's an interesting thing because in the U.S., networks don't call when you speak the truth. Networks call when you have the numbers. And so you're actually saying in Egypt, the network's called because you had a, a, an opinion, no. a bias that was no, different than the other channels. No, no, no. I was answering the question, why did people watch? So I said, oh, this oh, is oh. where the numbers came from. Oh, oh. So when people, well, networks call what whoever is popular. Yeah. And at that time, that was popular. And so, but they saw that it was popular like right away. Like, oh my gosh, yes. this got this is huge. This is like the Gangnam style of Egypt. Yes. Uh, that was, yeah, this was just like uh, catching fire. And then people... Uh, I I I I don't I didn't know by then if I would actually be good as a TV host. I, I didn't have, I didn't have any experience, uh, so I found myself signing uh, the contract for my first TV show in the same day that the H one visas came from Cleveland. And so now you had a decision to make. I had a decision to make: should I pursue a life of uh, empty fame and money, or should I continue healing people's hearts? So I chose the money. <laughs> but no, the th- thing is, like, I put. I, I even at that time I didn't quit medicine. I put medicine on hold. 
uh, or not just Madison Hall, the, 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 the travel to Cleveland, the travel to the United States at all. And I continued actually uh, performing my duties as a doctor in the, uh, as a faculty member in uh, Cary University uh, Hospital. How, how did your colleagues feel about your new, like obviously you were starting to be recognized in the street. Yes. Um, how did your it doctors was very feel? It was a little bit very uncomfortable when you're doing rounds with a professor leading the round and you're one of the young doctors there and you get all the attention from the patients. So that was very uncomfortable. Were and they jealous? Some of them were welcoming some of them had some insecurity problems. Like did anyone sit you down and say, listen, you really need to focus on being a better doctor, not doing I this. I heard that. I yeah. heard that. And uh, But I promised my mom, uh, who was a typically Middle Eastern mom, that I would continue being a doctor on the side. In in, in your book, um, Revolution for Dummies, you make a, a, a joke. Um, I think it was in the book or maybe it was in an interview, but I think it was in the book that you were, you know, you, know, you went to a good school, you were a heart surgeon, um, you were almost like a good Jewish son. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and and now here and now obviously you become the black sheep in a Jewish family if you go from medicine to yeah. comedy. So my mo- my mom's condition to continue to with the entertainment is to keep the medicine. Mm-hmm. So I kept it for a year and a half, but then I couldn't because not just like my schedule was becoming crazy, is because the Muslim Brotherhood after they arrived into power they started harassing me and kind of like pressure me into my workplace. So I didn't want to give how, them how a, so. So I'm sorry they, to interrupt. I'm an interrupter. Uh, so they kind of like started to question. Uh, you know, there's like whenever you work in a government facility, there's so many ways to, you know, uh, to get you, especially if the government you're making fun of the government owns the facility now. So they started. Uh, so I was like on a leave of absence. So they started to investigate the leave of absence. Uh, and uh, so I said, to, you know what? I'm not. I'm not going to give them anything to pressure me. So I resigned. I resigned from, and that was kind of officially me leaving medicine. But so I continued. So to answer your initial question, uh, wh- wh- when did you do leave medicine to do YouTube videos? No, that actually happened a year and a half ago into my show. So, so you sort of tongue in cheek said, um, "Do I spend a lifetime, you know, saving lives with medicine, or do I do empty fame and and money with comedy?" It's not quite true because your videos and show were obviously having an impact on the way the citizens of Egypt were viewing their country and their government. You were making, you, you, you were instrumental in changing the way people thought about what was happening in their country. I mean, what was it? Like 40% of the country were watching your show. Yeah. So, so it's not that's not empty fame. You were actually ha- making a difference and having an impact. So, so I'll, I'll call you. I I appreciate the tongue in cheek, <laughs> but you know you can argue saving lives on one hand, um, but also maybe informing tens or hundreds of millions of people over time uh, on what's happening in this very dire situation is also meaningful and impactful, and it's not just about the money and and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, we we are. Uh, that's why we work in satire. We make fun of everything, even of our life decisions. Um, and then I, I continue with my the show. Um, and after a year of the first the, the first season, that was a very small show, pre-recorded in a small studio. Then I said at the end of the season, I don't want to do this anymore. I want this to be a big live audience show with a real theater. And this is something never happened in Egypt. And everybody uh, ridiculed me. They said, it's never going to happen. It's going to be big budget. You're going to lose money. Nobody's going to buy this. 
And I said, I don't care. I don't want to do. Uh, I don't want to do the easy stuff anymore. Uh, so I traveled to the to New York, uh, and I met the team for the Daily Show. Uh, somehow I, I I persisted that I want to meet them, and uh, they accepted that I will shadow them for a couple of days. And I said in my mind, maybe I will snap a picture with John Stewart. And. Uh, I got more than this because John invited me to his office and I thought that would be a nice five-minute chat, continued for an hour. And then a couple of uh, min- minutes after the, the that meeting, the the booker, the, the the one who handled the guest, told me, would you like to be a guest on the show? And of course I said yes. And that was the beginning of a wonderful friendship. And, that, and then I appeared a total of four times on John Stewart's show. And I told him, on that day, I will make you proud. I'm going to go back to Egypt. I'm going to create the biggest show with live audience like you. And I will invite you to that theater. And a year after he came, he was on in Egypt on my show to support me. And he was a guest on my show. And he saw my theater. He was very proud of me. He was very proud of my team. And I mean, did he... I'm sure this must have been an incredible experience. Like this was your hero, your inspiration in, in comedy for your YouTube videos, for your show. Um, did he consider even producing your show in Egypt? He cannot produce a show in Egypt. The, the system is different. Mm-hmm. It is this is something we take money for the network and we do it. It's just, that he will not get involved in something like this. That was a totally different uh, ball game. Uh, we, we he came after the show has already established. Again, when you were making this shift, this change, what 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 self doubt did you have? Like obviously, you had put in you know, 15 years studying and doing medicine and you had just been doing a YouTube videos. Admittedly, they were Actually, very 19 popular. Year, 19 years. I did 19 years of studying and working as medical as a medical doctor. And then I do this and, and the self-doubt was, am I good enough to do this? And, and, I have no experience. I have no uh, history. Why am I doing this? Uh, I always felt that I'm undeserving. And uh, how do you overcome that? Because obviously you... you Maybe you never overcame it, but obviously you did. I, I, I never, I never, I still till till this day, I, ne- I never overcame. I never, I never overcome it. And and do you think that's a benefit? Do you think you would do better if you overcame that? I don't know. Uh, I uh, I always live with a continuous self doubt if I'm good enough to do this, uh, because uh, even when I came come here to America, uh, now I do comedy in English and I do stand up. And I always ask myself, why Why would I actually succeed while there are other people doing it for 20 years? And I don't know if I'm good enough to do it. I, I'm, I don't have the experience. I don't have the uh, the training. And, and so why am I doing this? So you, you do though have, so so this, this, this segues into an interesting thing, which is, you know, I'm sure you've read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers where he talks about, okay, you need, 10,000 hours of experience in something before you're among the best in the world. And when you refer to, to stand up or even being a talk show host, I mean, many of those guys or, or women have put in 10,000 hours of experience. Like John Stewart, before he started The Daily Show, he had already been 10,000 hours doing stand up, doing shows, being involved in a variety of projects. And then finally, he does The Daily Show. And what 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 do you think of that? Do you think do you think 
the 10,000 hours is necessary to find your your voice as the greatest? I, I mean, I don't know. It sounds credible, mm -hmm. but that, that's what makes me scared because I didn't put out that much time. And that's why I always feel that I am undeserving because out of nothing, I became a TV host of the biggest show in Egypt in history. Not just in Egypt, in the, in the Middle East. When you have 40 million people watching you, this is the, successful, the most successful thing that ever happened. You always ask, what, what did I put into it? And, and what, what skills that you, that you had that you were bringing into it, and whether they were skills or talents is, is something we could talk about, but what skills did you bring into the talk show, even that first season where you were getting over you know, 10 million viewers? Um, what, what made you the best? I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really struggling with that question. Is it because you were the only one? I don't believe that. No, there was other people. But the thing is, like, I always wanted to have a message. Because there are other people who are funnier than me. There were other people who are even more experienced than me. But maybe the only thing that I wanted, I wanted the show to matter. I wanted to see, all right, we're not going to just do easy jokes. We are going to have a message every time. We will make people laugh and then go, go home thinking. So give me an example of... What's like an, an easy joke that you could have done in Egypt at the time as, and then you taking it and pushing it a little further so it would have a message but still keep its humor? So uh, there, there's two incidences, one under the Muslim Brotherhood and one under the military. Uh, Sorry, say that the Muslim Brotherhood was... That, so, uh, yeah, we need to explain the history. Uh, after the revolution, the Islamists uh, got into power, the Muslim Brotherhood. And then after a year, they kind of alienated people from democracy. And then the army came in, presenting themselves as a savior. People welcomed them. That was actually a military coup. And then the military rule that's still ruling right now. This is from Morsi to Sisi. Yes, from Morsi to Sisi. So under the military, they... Uh, announced that they found a cure for AIDS. This is the most ridiculous uh, invention ever. And the invention looked um, uh, looked ridiculous. Uh, the guy who announced it, the general, looked ridiculous. And there were so many easy jokes there. But what we did is that we took that to hold the military accountable, to call them out. And we did something very simple that after each show, even if we're not talking about the AIDS machine, we will put a countdown clock, telling, reminding people about the deadline that the military said that they're going to release the the, the the cure. And people were waiting for this moment every single time. This is something very simple. So so like the easy joke. Uh, the easy joke is like, oh, look, that's so ridiculous. Look at him. You know, yeah. it's like, look what he did. Said. But that's, that is, that. but what, so is, what, what it, is that? You could have said his only experience was beating up people in Tahrir Square yeah. and suddenly... You know, he has this invention for AIDS. Yeah, yeah, but that, but that's that, that's very easy. Right? Yeah. But uh, but then uh, under the Muslim Brotherhood, they uh, always made uh, the statement that they are much purer than us as Muslims. So we just equated them with Nazis, and that was the bigger idea because you can always like take a word and make fun of the word. But what is the overarching idea of what's what's what they're saying? So with the with the Islamist is like they are purer than us. And they are a superior race. With the army, we cannot do any wrong. We can do wrong, no wrong. We are we are perfect. Well, why would they why would they take that platform of claiming to be perfect and pick something like AIDS? Like, oh, we found a cure for AIDS. Like, why would I've never heard a government like declare that? The arrogance. They think they can get away with anything. 
But why didn't they just say, oh, we found a cure for the common cold? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because uh, because people don't realize a lot that many dictatorships are very incompetent and they're stupid because so, they are used to the fact that it's a one-way conversation and people don't really ask or question them. So so this questioning, so let me let me pose an idea and and see what you think of it. To some extent, you know, you're 19 years in medicine. Medicine is a lot about skepticism. So you look at a patient, you don't yet know what's wrong with them. They say something, you examine the body and the data maybe suggest something else. And it's a matter of give and take, figuring out what is the actual problem. And you push yourself to find the right problem so you could find the right solution. And maybe you borrowed from those 10,000 hours of being skeptical in the medical field to be able to be skeptical where the patient is the country itself and the proposed solutions often seem ridiculous. Mm. And, and maybe that same skill set somehow you borrowed from into your satire. Maybe, but like at the end of the day, comedy and satire is all also about the delivery and experience on stage and, and that I never had. Mm-hmm. So you can have a good skeptical mind, but does that make you a great speaker or a great comedian or a great stand-up? And this is why coming back to the idea of like, am I deserving or not? I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, Good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, If you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. 
Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So tell me, like, when you were on stage, and again, you had the most popular show out there, so it doesn't matter that there were other shows, you obviously had something. What was it, do you think, in your delivery or in your approach that kind of made you stand apart from the other shows? I think people didn't just watch us every week for the easy laughs, because as I said, there are much people, people were fine, I think, uh, had a better sense of humor, but they were watching us every week because they were waiting for us to tell them what is going on in the country and what is our point of view. They actually reached for the show for guidance, which is interesting and flattering, but also very dangerous because you have all of this responsibility laid on you of people wanting you to be the changer, but we're not. We're just like telling them what's happening. Well, and even Jon Stewart would would always, when people would say, hey, I get all my news from The Daily Show, Jon Stewart was always careful to say, listen, we're a comedy show first. We're not a news show. Yes. Even though the reality is many people got their news from The Daily Show. And the thing is, uh, that, yeah, and as I said, this is uh, when people get frustrated with their politicians and with the news media, they turn to comedians because we don't ask you for anything other than giving you a good time and of laughter. But the, the danger is that people think too much of satirist and comedian and think that they have the answer. And that's, that's, that's very dangerous. Well, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a gray area going back thousands of years. I just think the, the mythology around the court jester, the court jester is supposed to be the only one in the court who can tell the King the the truth Mm -hmm. and the King's, whether the King listens or kills him, I don't know, but that's supposedly the jester's role. And that's the role you kind of played in Egypt. You were Egypt's jester. Yes. And so again, in terms of delivery, what skills did you have to learn to, to, how did you improve? How did, I mean, I'm sure you watched your video each week and studied it. Uh, how did you improve to improve your delivery? What were some of the skills you learned while in the very first season while you were doing this? To slow down. Yeah. To feel and enunciate the words more, to, uh, listen to the audience. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, to listen to the room because, and this is actually, by the way, it's a continuous, uh, because now when I'm doing stand-up in English, which is a, a total rewiring of the brain, because you see, John Stewart started as a stand-up comedian. Way back. And most of these hosts that you see right now, they started as stand-up comedians, most of them, and then they became a host, became hosts. I never did stand-up comedy in Egypt. I, from doctor to host, and then from host coming here doing stand-up comedy in English, not my language, never did stand-up comedy in Arabic. Now I'm coming here doing stand-up 
in English to an audience that's not mine or the language that's not mine. So they, um, the disruption that's happening in my brain, trying to overcome this. So I learned to be comfortable with the silence, to overcome the silence, be comfortable with the pauses, the, pause, the pauses itself are statements. And to uh, bring people in into your world instead of being frustrated if, the, if your jokes are not working. I, I want to um, get to the stand-up in a second because that's part of how you're recreating yourself in, in America. And I, I would argue stand-up is one of the most difficult skills out there now. I'm talking to a heart surgeon, which I'm sure is an incredibly difficult. Uh, I would say it's really up there. <laughs> and uh, I, I myself have been doing stand-up in this very club that we're doing this podcast in, and uh, it's 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 one of the most fascinating reinventions of of my life after many mm. reinventions. But it seems with you, you well, let's talk about stand-up in a second. I want to continue with the the journey that you took. Your your you you know you went from first season to to then show with a, a live audience. I guess you wanted the live audience because you get that that visceral feedback as you're doing your, yes. your satire. Yes, oh yeah, 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 big time, big Was time. that a big difference? Oh, huge difference. The energy that you get from the audience was just like incredible, incredible, like night and day. And you know, there's something interesting too about having an audience for a TV show like yours, which is not, the audience is not random. Like when you do stand-up at a comedy club, the audience is random. Most often, they're not there to see you. They might not even know who you are. Mm -hmm. Now, that saying it, I want to just mention to people listening to this, you have 10 million Twitter followers. You have millions of Instagram followers. I'm sure on every social media platform, you have millions of followers. So people around the world know you, but here in the United States, probably not everyone yes. knows who you are. And so when you do stand up in a club, not everyone knows who you are. You kind of have to convince them from start. Every time you go up, like me, find me funny, find my point of view interesting, and so on. But when you have a live audience at a show in Egypt, people who are in the audience, you, you've, they, they've almost pre-selected themselves. To, you have an audience that likes you. You don't have to educate them. Mm -hmm. so, so to some extent, the audience there is different than the audience here because they're, they're more inclined to, to like what you're saying and, and laugh at it and, and give you that energy and, and, and help you figure out that feedback, how to navigate it. Um, but how did you see your, so you said your, your delivery changed because you started to appreciate the silence and, and, the, and your pauses. What were you learning from the silence of the audience? That like, you need to be comfortable with the silence because uh, comedians are usually get nervous when there's silence in the room. They need the laughter. So I learned that like you need to slow down instead of rushing to the next joke mm. because that will actually spoil two jokes. Yeah, and I think, like you said, when there's silence, Often comedians get nervous and speed up. Yeah. So, you do, so doing the opposite of that yeah. is, is important. And 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 sometimes and also I learned that uh, maybe they are silent because they're listening to you. Mm. They don't not they're not vocal, but maybe they appreciate what you're saying. So at least you want to tell yourself this, especially if you, if you're talking about something deeper. Uh, so I think yeah, not rushing to the next joke because that would just like spoil the whole set. Well, a lot of times there could be silence because it could be silence for three reasons, maybe. There's silence because they don't like you. Mm -hmm. There's silence because they think you're funny, but they're smiling inside. It's not like a belly laugh kind of joke. 
or there's silence because you've said something that's incredibly tense and they're still waiting for the tension to break and then they're going to laugh. Yes. And you kind of have to figure that out in real time. And did you find that a lot on your show that, okay, they're silent right now, but I just said something really, you know, inciting and insightful and I just need to figure out how to break that tension so they can laugh. Well, with the with the TV show, it's going to be difficult because you're following a script. There's a teleprompter, and there's like a queue for videos that are coming up. So it has to. It is a little bit difficult to actually break out of that. In stand up, yours is freestyling. <coughs> but uh, I think we were. We just have to be confident in our material and yeah. know that this will work. And and you got that confidence because. You were in such a high stakes situation. This is the, this is the the lives of the entire country of of Egypt, and beyond, really, because the the Arab Spring was was uh, hitting every country in the in the Middle East, but also in the years after that, you know, kind of what was happening in Egypt was being looked at by by many countries. How how revolution was working, and you were kind of the voice of the other side. And so, so it was important what 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 you were doing, and it, and it was high stakes, and uh, you know, you could always fall back on your message. I feel like in America, there's not as much of a message to fall back on. There's a billion philosophers slash comics who have an opinion either on for Trump or against Trump, and d- does America really need one more philosopher slash comic? Is unclear. Mm. And and there's tons of talk shows. And again, they have their biases, each one of them. Um, but you were you were the only one in Egypt, and that must be a difference you feel between Egypt and America. Yes, because America is kind of saturated in that space. It's everybody can do they anybody can start a blog right now and or a vlog and do it. But in Egypt, uh it was a very, very polarized uh, um, country. And I would I was not I was not, I was not with anybody. I was not with the Islamists or the military. So people thought that like, all right, maybe he has a point. Right. He's although not. everybody tried to peg you, like you for a while you were with um uh, uh the owner of the station was a, a a billionaire Christian, so people thought you were oh, yeah. kind of a tool of that guy. <laughs> yeah. People would like anything, they will, like, they will always find that there's an ulterior motive of what I'm doing. It's 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 uh, for self interest money. It's uh, uh, you're do you're you're doing you're hating the Islamists because you are a secret atheist and you hate the, or a secret Christian even, uh, and even I would say I was called a secret Jew. And uh, you know your wife's Palestinian, and it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, your wife Palestinian, so you must have like some ulterior political motives. And then, uh, then I was against the military. It's like, oh, you are a traitor. You are actually being paid by America. They always find a way that doesn't have to do anything with what you think or what you, or your, your opinions are in order to bring you down. This is how you discredit people. So instead of the Trump supporters, instead of actually dealing with the news, they say it's fake news. Right. You know, so they kind of discredit from the beginning. These are these are fake news. These are like uh, unfair, whatever. But but the only reason you were being t- uh, attacked is because you were had a strong enough influence that you were a threat. Yes. So one, uh, you know, to to quote my podcast producer Steve Cohen, when you're a threat, you're a target, and mm-hmm. you were becoming a target, mm-hmm. a target to the point where eventually the government started to take more. They started closing in on you. Yes. You were getting sued. And, and this happened uh, both under two regimes. So under the Islamist, I ended up having. Um, 
a warrant for my arrest, and I had to actually be interrogated by the general prosecutor. In Were you scared? The, no. You didn't, you didn't, see, this is a little, Egypt sort of in between, I feel, in the sense that if you were in China being interrogated or if you were in some other very uh, authoritarian regime, they might take you in for interrogation and no one would ever see you again, no trial, nothing. I was kind of focused on like doing a good show at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, when, when under the Islamists, the Islamists tried to stop the show, but they couldn't because they were not strong enough. Then the military came and I have to say I was, I admit that I was scared not because of what they can do to me, but they could, what could they do to the people around me? Because the, my producer, they took his father and his brother in, and they were very hostile, and they stopped my show right there in the beginning. They stopped my show twice. They jammed the, my satellite signal because they controlled the communication. But again, why couldn't they just throw you in jail and shut you up? They wanted to, to appear, because at that time, the military wanted to appear gain its legitimacy in in front of the world. Now they don't care, but at that time it was, they wanted to prove that they were not a coup. So they want to kind of make it as, uh, as devious as possible and underhanded as possible. So it's like, oh, I mean, I, it's not us. I mean, something happened with the satellite. Uh, we didn't stop his show. It is uh, financial problems between him and the network. And they, of course, they are the one who are pressuring the network. And, um, it took them a year to kind of like effectively shut me down because now they were more comfortable. They were having now the military aid from America. America is acknowledging them. Europe is acknowledging them. So they they thought that they can now move on and completely shut down the media. So it took them a year, the military. Uh, and, uh, and then they came after me because they know they can get away with it. And this is where I escaped. So, so uh, you escaped specifically at one point. There was a, a lawsuit. You lost. There was lots of things at stake. Yeah, and and I didn't lose because I didn't have a good position. It was totally politi a politicized right. verdict, and it was a financial verdict. You see, this is the way they they get people there. They don't get people because of freedom of expression. Uh, in Egypt, we have a very uh, famous and very popular football play soccer player. He's one of he's like our LeBron James, basically. And he's retired, and he was they, he was known to be a little bit sympathetic with the previous government, and uh, they got him for tax evasion, mm. and they confiscated all his money, and he had to escape. Mm. So this is how they get you. So, so when you moved to uh, America, so during one, you, you know, they were they were closing in on you, they were coming to get you, whether it was your money or you or your family, or whatever. You moved to America, you had. You had 90 minutes to basically pack up and get to the airport. You were even afraid at that point they would have already put you on a no-fly list, but fortunately, yes. you got lucky. Yeah, because it was just like a couple of hours after the verdict, so they didn't have time. So so, so you flew out to Dubai, the, essentially the closest place you could get to. Yes. And in Dubai, once you were in Dubai, you felt safe? You didn't feel that Egypt's claws would, would get no, to Dubai? No, I, I didn't feel 100% safe because they still... in. They still have they communica talk. communications, and I don't know if I'm going to be deported or anything. But like, I felt like relatively safer. Were you able to pull your money out? Were you already uh, some of it? Yes, uh, but but at the end, um, I I felt that like if I'm going to stay in that area, I'm not going to be able to do to be free of, to say what I want. So so you you moved to the United States. Um, there's a documentary about you. Tickling Giants. Tickling Giants. By an amazing Seth Exler, who was a, a, a producer at The Daily Show for 10 years, and she followed me since the day I went into the office of John Stewart. 
And uh, again, I highly encourage people to to watch that. And um, and now you start this new podcast, uh, Remade in America. Um, and what's what are your challenges? What's you're 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 one of the you're the most famous person in Egypt. You get to America. You walk down the street, people don't recognize you. Where, yes. where, where are your 10 million Twitter followers? They're not, <laughs> they're not on Hollywood Boulevard. They're not. And, uh, and there's uh, 200,000 podcasts, including this one. And there's, there's 5,000 working stand-up comics. There's, there's you know, news and com- news slash comedy-related talk shows on every single channel, you know, going from the late-night show on down. Um, and you know, it was very, very good ones just recently started on, on Netflix, but just basically every outlet has, has, uh, kind of politically oriented satire news shows. You're doing stand up. Where do you see, this is, this is an amazing re- reinvention as well. Cause where, h- how is it going? <laughs> well, here's the thing. I had to deal with my, with myself and I need to acknowledge that the days of my shows in Egypt where I was the biggest thing there is behind me. This is a legacy and I created this legacy and the legacy will stay. And I will not f- make this be in the way of an, uh, or, because you know, that uh, there's ego involved. You shouldn't let that ego be in the way of you trying to reinvent yourself here because I'm here and I'm totally acknowledge the fact that I am here in a different playing field. So you can't feel entitled. Uh, I know. There's, there's absolutely no entitlement. I don't expect doors to be open for me. I need to earn this. So when I do stand-up, and when I'm trying material, I go to a small uh, comedy club in Los Angeles. And when the announcers know me, and they say, uh, I'm going to introduce and say, the John Susan, and I don't say this. Just say Basim from Egypt. And I go there, what, audience that haven't seen me, maybe haven't seen the, the Daily Show, and I need to earn my place there. I need, I need to earn their approval. So I'm, I'm do, at the age of 44, two kids and a wife, I'm doing what 22 years old, uh, young, uh, str- uh, struggling actors doing uh, waiting tables and trying to find their way into a new field while I'm doing it as a disadvantage because English is not my first language too. But, but are you doing stand up to become a great stand up comedian? No. Now, now, uh, Obviously, you always want to improve, but uh, uh, you know what? What's do you have an outcome in mind? Like you want to again start a talk I, I show? Wish do you want I, to do I, I wish I wish to uh, host my own talk show as I did in Egypt, and I want it to be different. And stand up is a, a great segue to do that. So maybe now I actually should follow the normal path instead of just like sprouting out as a host. I need to do things the right way and I need to give it time and I need to work on myself and invest into my abilities and myself to be uh, deserving. Well, you know, on the one hand, I mean, of course I agree with you, like that's always a good thing. But again, there is something to be said by the fact that you were able to create with competition the number one show, number one comedy slash satire slash news show in Egypt. But that's Egypt. Right, but there are skills from there that you could bring here, which is what I see from you is this ability to push a little further than the easy. Like we're doing this podcast above a comedy club and I see the comedians there every night. The easy jokes make the crowd laugh. And, And there's a tendency I think for many comedians 
to get addicted to the easy jokes because it just it's an easy dopamine fix. Oh, I'll go up for 10, 15 minutes, get the crowd to laugh. No one can criticize me and we'll see. But how do you find yourself? And you probably see the same thing when, when you go up. So how, how are you now trying to put your skill? It seems to me is to be able to put your, your skill at reinvention is to be able to push that pick an area and push that one layer deeper where you're, where you become unique. Mm. And how do you see yourself doing that in, in stand up? Well, uh, I am. I consider myself a little bit different from many of the comics because, first of all, I am not an Arab American comedian. Because Arab American comedians are essentially American. Right. They they, make fun, they, they get up stage. They, they make they, fun of their backgrounds. They, they make fun of their parents. Yeah, yeah. They and they, they were them. raised here. They were born here. I came fresh off the boat a couple of years ago from that area. So I am an Arab speaking to you in your language, telling you stuff about my people and how am I perceived here and how you are perceived in my country. And this duality is, it makes an, uh, an uh, like creates an interesting mix. So I make fun of hypocrisy that I see in America, but also I make fun of the hypocrisy that I see in uh, the religious people and the people that come in, in, in politics in, in, in the Middle East. And I, try to draw similarities between what you see here and see there. Like what's an example? Well, you know, the whole idea about uh, hypocrisy in religion. It's it's the same. Uh, the, I How is uh, Trump is very similar to some of our dictators and how the uh, the, the gun supporters here are not no similar for the patriotic uh, voices and mouthpieces back in Egypt. And, and I speak about my life as an Arab Muslim immigrant here being the usual suspect every time something happens here. Do so, you find do you find that um and by the way that premise is always funny the fact that every Muslim or Arab I have, I have to explain myself. Why is it's like why don't you speak why don't you speak louder? What do you want me to I'll go up like Empire State and shout. What do you want me to do? So so um do you find that in your stand-up, uh, and uh, and we'll talk about your podcast in a second also, but do you find that in your stand-up, crowds are less likely to laugh because they're not? it's not the standard set-up punchline that they're used to in a comedy club, but you're able to get them kind of thinking a little more deeply because you're pointing out these similarities between let's say authoritarian governments and what, where we are now, you know, using satire. Well, well, actually I have, I had the, like a really uh, good run in Joe's pub because I, I think the standup was able to have the best of both worlds. We have really big laughs, but we also have parts where people are thinking and the thinking creates tension and then you end up with a big laugh. So it is quite like, I think one of the people at Joe's pub use the word this is a very loaded stand-up mm. it's a very loaded stand-up like and and yesterday that there were like uh people from india indian directors that came from with my agents and they said i could not actually uh i, I never lost focus for one i was like there i was paying attention for a whole hour and this is what i like about it it was like loaded it was full of ideas and it was relevant and it was it was more of a story and narrative, not separate jokes that doesn't relate to each other. There's a story that there is like an arc that you're creating uh, between my journey from starting in Egypt, coming all the way here. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting because I'm 50. I've been doing stand-up for about three years. And 
Um, like you say, I don't have the 20 years experience of many of the people who go up downstairs, but when they start at 22, they also don't have the life experience. Yes. So you're able to draw from the life experience. This, this very strange thing happened to me that I'm going to explain why it's strange. And that in itself is, is different and funny that they don't expect. Like, this is what you can expect as you, as you grow older and observe, like, uh, and if you have an odd kind of life, or if you have a, a life filled with reinvention and in high stakes situations, these sorts of things can happen and they're loaded. Mm. Uh, and that's where some of the humor comes from. But the challenge, and just in terms of a craft level, is still turning it into the punchline. Yes. And yes. Do, do you run across that where you're like, oh, I've got this great story, but... Well, 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 the thing is, like, I have a story of someone who got persecuted for his jokes, and that's something unique. Mm -hmm. And he used that. He used that. And people would, would like to listen. I mean, there's a whole set, a, a bit in my, my uh, routine where I speak about the time when I was persecuted and, and, and interrogated for six hours. What is it like to interrogate a comedian for six hours? You know, so that is something that people would listen to because they, they will never listen to it anywhere else. So, so that's a funny premise. Yes, and and often the best way to have a funny punchline is to start with a funny premise. But do you, do you still find yourself working hard to you know pushing that extra layer to come up with the funny punchline to that? Yes, yes, absolutely. It's a it's a work in progress. It's the whole time. Yes. And then you also have your podcast. In fact, we've we've shared a couple of of very uh, interesting guests like Jordan Peterson and and uh, Sheila Nevins, and uh, I'm sure there will be there will be others in the future. And uh, how's how's it going in general? Like, how are you? You know, again, this is a total reinvention. You were number one in Egypt. Now you're here. Uh, how are you doing financially? Well, it's fine. I mean, like the, the public speaking is going well. Uh, I, I do a lot of lectures on public speaking, and that actually helped me. And uh, I've got a lot of support of uh, my agents, and uh, uh, I'm. It's going well. I, I and I think I'm like everybody else in the entertainment business, waiting for a big break. So I hope the big break will come. Maybe some executives and some networks say, "All right, we need that voice right now because there's nobody from my part of the world is being represented." Why not do the same thing you did in Egypt, which is essentially you chose yourself to create your first show. You did it on YouTube, where... because here, here the market is too saturated. Hmm. It will be. It's not going to be like an easy ride, like what happened. In, I mean, I'm not saying that in Egypt it was easy, but it's just like as you said, it's the content here is everywhere. You 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 feel here. It's more important to get the blessing of some network executive. Yes, because or else you're just going to be like one of thousands of vloggers doing it. Mm. But at the same time, look at media in America. I mean, Netflix is spending thirteen billion a year on original programming. They've got two hundred shows up there. I don't even know one hundred ninety nine of the shows. Yeah. Like, like TV is also saturated. I know, but like at least you get more visibility and you get the chance to have a show to speak your mind and then you are into the competition and then you prove yourself. I see. So so just getting your foot in the door, yes. f pushing yourself to find that one layer mm -hmm. deeper that makes you different and then you see what happens and, you, and then you prove yourself. Exactly. So, so what are the, given that you've gone through this sort of rep, uh, reinvention several times and again, in, in pretty high stakes situations, it's not like you're switching from working at a, grocery store to working in a shoe store. You're like, you know, going from being a doctor to being the voice against the government to being in America. 
It's a huge reinvention. What are some of the skills of reinvention that you feel you've carried from career to career? Uh, I think uh, being a doctor and being a nerd and being persistent <laughs> is the most important thing. What do you mean being a nerd? Being a nerd is someone who's like persistent about knowing the knowledge and studying. So I study, study a lot. And 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 like for let's say for stand up which which um I agree with you is kind of builds the building block of skills for a talk show host or for many other things. What what do you study to learn those skills? Oh, all, all kind of all all stand ups I can watch. <laughs> and uh even, even 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 George Carlin, the old school. But but right but right now even when I in the car and I listen to Sirius XM the the comedy show and I always listen I listen to their pauses and where do they pause I listen to the unexpected joke I expected to like how they switch yeah like the reversals mm -hmm. like you thought they were going down one way they yes, go down another yes, way yes yes um you know there's also various comics who are known more everybody every comedian sort of known for their thing like some people are insult comics some people are straight set up punchline and some people are storytellers like Mike Birabiglia uh, is a storytelling comic. He had a Netflix special. Mm. Uh, Gary Goldman is a storytelling style comic. And many of those might fit your style and approach. There's also a lot of political comics, but I think, again, we're almost saturated. Because of Trump, we've become saturated with political commentary. Yes, yes. And, you know, just as a, a final thing, you know, uh, revolution is interesting. Like, you can argue... Mubarak, which everybody, and I know nothing, okay? I've never even been to Egypt. But you couldn't argue that after 30 years of him being in power, uh, there was some stability there. You were able to relatively safely grow up and build a career and do your thing. And then there's a revolution, and suddenly it's the Islamists in control and the military in control. And, and this is kind of a worldwide phenomenon that change while it always seems exciting, it's not necessarily for the better, even if the prior situation was bad. You are, okay, let, let me answer you in a, in a medical term. Yeah. This is kind of like if you're having a very slow growing cancer, mm -hmm. but like I'm surviving, and then you interfere and there's complication, but you, you stay there and you want to make the body better. The thing is that having a cancer is not stability. The stability is only on the surface. And the reason why the revolution failed not because of the revolution, it's because the alternatives were killed. The alternative, the, system, the, the, the democratic secular alternatives were always put down by the dictators. They will always prop up the Islamists and the military, so that will be your only two options. So, so the thing is, this is not like the fault of a revolution. What we're having right now is because of the festering dictatorship and incompetence that happened under, not just under Mubarak 30 years, but the 30 years before him with the, with the military coming to power. This is the result of him, not the, right. the revolution. The, the, is, the revolution is just, what they do is they lift the lid. Well, you well, you're, you're passing, you're passing a, like if you're walking over the sewers, you don't really smell, but there's a lid. It doesn't mean that there's not shit down there. So, so, and you make the point in your book, Revolution for Dummies, that uh, the the Islamists and the military are often the same. They're the same, and they and and if there's any kind of uh, like agreement, it will always be between those, these two uh, on the be on the behalf on the expense of whatever liberal force is there. And and I wonder if it's because of 
just rising income inequality worldwide, you know, uh, like in, in the Middle East, for instance, because of oil, there's be, becomes the poor class that doesn't have access to the resources of oil. And there's the upper classes, um, and then the corrupt classes, uh, does, does rising inequality ever have a solution that's peacefully resolved other than through, uh, uh, some sort of violent revolution backed by a religion to control the masses. Well, inequality is always comes from the fact that there is, there's enough resources in the world, but it's always the people who are in power. They want to sequester these resources for them. So they either do it in the name of religion or in the name of nationalism. So that you will always have this. And the only way to actually look at Northern Europe, Northern Europe don't have that much resources. Germany have no resources, by the way, no natural resources, but it's because of transparency, accountability, and secularism. Mm. That's that's what makes pe people can share their resources because now people have the power of accountability, like uh, asking and questioning and accountability. Uh, Germany doesn't have the oil of Saudi Arabia or the gold and and uh, and the diamonds of Africa. Uh, Germany is known to be a very poor uh, resource country. They don't have nothing, but they have management. They know how to manage. Same with Japan. What are the natural resources of Japan? other than fishing, nothing. And then in, in America, um, you know, we start to see parallels just in the divide. Uh, you start to see parallels between this country and other more, you know, extreme countries. Uh, do you think we're heading in that direction? No, or? The, no the, uh, problem with America is not Trump or the right, the rise of right wing. The, I think the power of the America, the problem with America is more it's turning into more of an oligarchy. How like how you as a voter go in and you vote for a, a, a candidate and then he go, goes and gets money from uh, other uh, lobby lobbies and that that end up affecting their decision. So they're basically they end up not representing you. They're representing the people who give them money. So it's money that's running politics, which is very uh, very disturbing. So so uh, Bassem Youssef, you have such a fascinating story. Uh, I hope you can come on the podcast again and we'll follow the journey. I just want to spell your name for the listeners. It's B-A-S-S-E-M-Y-O-U-S-S-E-F. Check out uh, uh, Remade in America, the, the podcast. Uh, I'm going to recommend Revolution for Dummies, the, the book. And Tickling Giants. Tickling the Giants, the documentary. Uh, just check this guy out. He's He's... An important person to to check out. I'm so glad you you came on the show. Also, every time you Google your name, the John Stewart of Egypt always comes up. So uh, you really did fascinating things, and your your story of reinvention is inspiring. And uh, I hope we keep keep following the story. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mm -hmm.